Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Veterans and their families should have an easier time accessing military service records. That's because the National Archives and Records Administration says it eliminated a pandemic-era backlog of requests at its National Personnel Records Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Malnara is looking at digitizing decades of its paper records on veterans and looking at how artificial intelligence can expedite requests. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with archivist Colleen Shogan. It took a, a major effort from our staff at the National Personnel Records Center, and that's the bottom line to this story. They worked the weekends, they worked overtime, they worked on federal holidays, and their willingness to go the extra mile to eliminate this backlog was really what made the difference. All right. And in terms of the amount of overtime that it took and that went into this effort here, do you have a sense of how much overtime NARA staff put into this? I couldn't really give you uh, an exact number of hours that were worked, but I can tell you this, that every weekend when it was possible, we would authorize the overtime for people to be able to work. And there was not a federal holiday that went by where we weren't also allowing people to come in to work away and chip away at the backlog. But that was not required overtime. This was optional and people chose to want to do it so that they could could be part of this effort to eliminate the backlog. And I understand that Congress put up some pretty substantial appropriations to help out with these efforts. I understand that the Technology Modernization Fund also put up some money for some related work on this. How essential were those funds to doing everything that went into eliminating that backlog? The Technology Modernization Fund was critical because that helped to improve the application on everybody's computers that processed the requests coming in from veterans and enabled more requests to be handled in any given hour of any given day. It increased the bandwidth and the power of that application, which allowed the backlog to be eliminated much quicker than it would have been otherwise. So that was a critical piece of support that the National Archives received from Congress to get this done. And I understand that a lot of this modernization work and technology that you guys were using was not just to eliminate this backlog, but it's been a little more forward-looking as well, specifically the digitization work. Can you tell me a little bit more about the focus of that digitization work? I understand that as of now, most NPRC records are still only available in hard copy. That's correct, because there's, you know, uh, millions and millions and millions of, of veterans records that we need to work through. But we have partnered with the Veterans Administration, and we are working backwards in time, starting with most recent veterans who have paper or analog records, and working backwards to be able to digitize military records so that if there is another emergency in the future, hopefully not something on the scale that we experienced with COVID, but if there is, we will be ready to serve our military veterans because we will have those records digitized and they will be able to be accessed through an online program and we can continue service to many of our nation's veterans if this would ever happen again. This has really made the National Archives better prepared and will improve service to veterans for decades to come. VA has been a partner in a lot of this work. Can you tell me a little bit more about, I guess, the division of labor? Because obviously you guys have the physical records and naturally VA is the one providing service to veterans. So in terms of that tag team effort, how did things break down there and what help did you get from the VA? 
he got a lot of help and support from the VA and predominantly through digitization efforts because it's much quicker and faster for the VA to help us with the digitization of records, which keeps our staff and employees free to be able to do the response to the requests that come in. So that's been the division of labor. And that's what we're going to do going forward. As I understand it, the Veterans Administration is going to continue to request funds so that we can continue digitizing at this pace or possibly increase the pace. And you said that NARA is working backwards on those digitization efforts and that the newest cases that are coming in are the the first to be digitized. Is there a a rough timeline of how long this project is going to be going on for, uh, recognizing that you guys have a lot of records? It will take decades to digitize all of the military records. But as you can think about the whole history of military records, when you start to go back at a certain point in time, such as, you know, uh, before World War II, then you start to hit records that sometimes are used by genealogists, by families, by historians, but are not used usually in a way to obtain benefits for living veterans or recently deceased veterans. So really what we have to get through is the past 40 or 50 years of veterans records where people are still accessing the benefits. And once that is done, that will be the bulk of our requests will be in digital format and we'll be able to respond much, much quicker and much more efficiently. Right now, one significant thing that NARA is able to do now that this backlog is no more is that the time to fill these requests request from veterans who are looking for the records that is now at a much lower rate. Can you tell me a little bit more about the current level of service that NARA is able to provide to them? Absolutely. Most of our requests from veterans are filled within seven days of when you submit the request. And we are now on pace to respond to almost all requests within 20 days. So that is the time frame. If you're asking for a a more straightforward request, such as your DD-214, you can expect in most instances to have that within seven days. Other requests, you know, that might require a little bit more information and investigation of the records, up to 20 days. And that is the pace that we are on now that the backlog has been eliminated. And we plan on maintaining that pace going forward. And in terms of keeping that pace, as you said, going forward, what additional steps is NARA taking to you know, make sure that that is the pace of what it can do to honor these requests going forward and what NARA can do to avoid future backlogs? One thing that we're doing that will, I think, improve service and even maybe in the future shorten wait times is that we're doing pilot projects to explore the role of artificial intelligence or AI in helping us fulfill the easier requests that veterans might have. And the way that we're doing that is enabling an artificial intelligence to be able to look at a veteran's digitized record or born digital record and be able to locate the one piece of information that the veteran is seeking, usually, once again, the DD-214 form, be able to pull that form out of the larger record and then deliver it to the veteran via email. And we have experimented with that in the pilot process. It's been very, very successful. And eventually we will roll that out in larger scale. And once we do that, that will enable our very talented staff to focus on some of the requests that are a little bit harder to fulfill. And then the wait time for those requests will go down as well. If I could be a little more forward-looking again, obviously this work that you just described with the AI pilot, that is ongoing. Uh, As far as 
other modernization efforts. Can you tell me a little bit more about the current status of the TMF funds that NARA received? Is that still going on with uh, the case management work there? Um, and, and if so, can you just tell me a little bit more about how that's going to be valuable? Well, we are uh, replacing our case management system. That technology modernization fund was used to improve that system when we were working on the backlog. And now we're at the point where we will be able to actually replace that case management system with a new system that will be more efficient and more effective. And now that the backlog is cleared, we feel as though that is the time in which we are able to make that change and we will do so. So there will be a period of transition there when we switch from one application to the next, as there always is in large scale systems. But I think in the long run that the new system will much better serve our nation's veterans and certainly will help our staff fulfill requests on a much, much faster basis. Going back to the digitization piece of things, obviously that's key to the faster turnaround to fill requests. But I guess it also is valuable from like a preservation point of view, because as we've seen historically, you know, fires happen, floods happen, a lot of unforeseen things happen to paper records, and it can be very difficult, if not impossible, to retrieve those records. So in terms of that value proposition, what are you guys looking to get out of the digitization work that you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, my own father's military records from the Army post-World War II were unfortunately destroyed in uh, the fire. So I, I understand firsthand what happens to records if they fall victim to some of these unfortunate circumstances that take place. So through digitization, we will be ensuring preservation. And most importantly, it will enable people that across the country to be able to gain access to their families' records. Some of the records that are packaged in a certain way, the Navy records are sort of packaged together in a brick. And once those bricks are untangled and then they are digitized, it will be much, much easier to be able to view those records wholesale than what we actually have right now in the analog or paper format. So for ease of use and also for generations to come, this is the right step to take. Yeah. And you were mentioning the kind of two-tier system of simple requests and complicated requests. Can you give me a, a better sense of what those complicated requests sometimes look like and how they're a little more difficult to complete? You know, we have uh, recent legislation that has become law uh, that is providing benefits to military service members who served in certain locations, such perhaps near burn pits. And in order to be eligible for those benefits that the law provides, then you have to be able to look through the record. It wouldn't necessarily just appear on your summary service record. You have to look further into the record to see where the military service member actually spent time throughout his or her career. So that would be a, a, you know, potentially a more complex request. Also, some of the medal qualifications have changed over time. And a service member might have not qualified for a medal 10, 15, 20 years ago, but now those qualifications has changed and the person is applying for consideration for the medal. This actually happened to my uncle who served in World War II in the Navy, and he was not eligible for certain medals when uh, he actually was discharged from the Navy. But then many years later, he was eligible for medals, but that required an actual examination of his records in order to prove his service and his eligibility. To kind of bring it full circle here, it's not just significant that NARA completed this backlog, that it eliminated it, but that it eliminated it pretty close to the timeline it gave lawmakers. I think the last I read up on this, December 2023 is what you guys were looking at. And here we are in January. Uh, that's pretty spot on uh, as far as an estimate. 
in terms of getting that done, it seems pretty significant that you pulled it off. It was. And we have very good leadership at the National Personnel Records Center. I personally tracked the uh, weekly progress of the center on the, of the backlog reduction. So I would get the numbers every week if there was, if we had projections for every week. And if we were off the projection for any reason, I would inquire why. And if there were ways in which I could help, then I did. So it was a lot of vigilance from our leadership. But once again, it was the people who actually do the work, the people who fill those requests, our archivists and our archivist technicians who actually came in and did the, the extra work and got it done. They were also, uh, just to keep in mind, there were new requests coming in. So they had to keep up with the current workload in addition to making sure they worked through that 600,000 request backlog. So it was no small feat. Colleen Shogan, archivist of the U.S. and director of the National Archives and Records Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.